0: This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. This is a Vault Studios production.
1: The way the house was burnt, looking at it, it just all makes sense as this was planned out to be done this way.
2: We all know that incendiary devices can be set to timers. Anytime
1: you're dealing with a fire, you're on a heightened sense of alert because... Fire is a great way to cover up a
2: crime. It's mid-afternoon on a Friday, July 14th, 2017, when the camera trips on inside the vehicle. There are two men inside, seated in the driver and passenger seats. And through the rear window, you can see the road behind them is disappearing quickly. The trees lining the road are a blur of green on either side. Clearly they're driving fast, both focused on the road ahead, appearing concerned. The video's pretty choppy, but I can see what appears to be the St. Tammany Fire District 12 shield on the right breast of the driver's polo shirt. And on the left side, you can just make out the words fire chief. Below that, a name, S. Krentel, which I know to be short for Steve Krentel. St. Tammany Fire District 12, Chief Steve Krentel. Steve,
3: Steve Krentel. Steve
2: the vehicle Steve is driving isn't a fully equipped fire truck, but it's a department vehicle, meaning there's a device on board that's often called a tattletale camera. It's a camera that sits on the dashboard and kicks on whenever the truck goes at a high speed or suddenly changes direction. All you can hear in this footage is the thunk of metal, the weight of the truck as it speeds over the roadway, that and the blare of sirens in the background. Steve's unit is responding to a call for a house fire in an area that most of us would probably consider the middle of nowhere, deep in the backwoods of an unincorporated part of southeastern Louisiana. It's a community called Lacombe, It's a sparsely populated area where houses are few and far between. And the home they're responding to is at the end of a dead-end road, surrounded on all sides by thick woods. It's remote, but Steve Krentel, the local fire chief, knows this area like the back of his hand. He's driven this very road countless times, so many that he can no doubt picture the home at the end of the road before it even comes into view. He knows there will be a locking gate just off to the left, with the home beyond it at the end of a long paved driveway. And in his memory, it's a sprawling property with outbuildings on the side and in the back. The home itself is a single-story residence with a brick front and green trim around the garage, where a couple lives with their dog and two cats. At least, that's how the home exists in his memory. But what he doesn't know is what shape it's in now how bad the fire is, how much has burned. The video I'm watching is a split screen with one side tracking what's happening in the cab of the vehicle. These two men focused on the road and the other side facing forward, showing what they're seeing as the vehicle approaches the home. And as Steve Krentel, the fire chief, drives up to the front lawn, the forward facing camera shows the house. It's bad and based on his immediate reaction, much worse than he was expecting. Over the howl of the sirens, you can hear him say, oh my God. The house in front of Steve Krentel is completely engulfed in flames. A cloud of thick black smoke is rising from it, almost blending in with the dark green tree line. The dash cam footage is a little grainy, but the bright orange and white glow of the flames is unmistakable. It's clear they didn't get here in time to save much, if any, of the house. For a fire chief, it's usually not a surprise to see a house fire, even one as bad as this one. It's part of the job, but this isn't just another call, and it isn't just another house fire. This is his house. And parked in the carport, Steve sees a familiar vehicle, a red Mercedes SUV, the vehicle driven by his wife, Nanette Krentel. I'm Katie Moore, and I'm an investigative reporter and anchor with WWL TV. It's a local news station in New Orleans, Louisiana. I've been a reporter here for over 15 years. And I wanna tell you about a story I haven't been able to stop thinking about since I started reporting on it a few years ago. It's the kind of story that every time you think you've figured it all out, it takes a sharp turn and leaves you rethinking everything you thought you knew.
1: There's ways to get out. It's not like the house suddenly has just burst into flames.
2: It's one of the most heartbreaking, frustrating, and mysterious stories that I've ever covered in my career. And it's one that's still raising eyebrows around here to this day.
3: You know you're getting the run when you when you hear things like that.
2: It starts in a tucked away corner of Louisiana, about 700 miles southwest of Bartstown, Kentucky, where Shea McAllister took you through a series of unsolved murders in our first season. But now we're traveling from the Bourbon capital of the world to a bayou 50 miles from Bourbon Street in New Orleans a village in southeastern Louisiana. From Vault Studios, this is beyond Bardstown, Lacombe. There is no place like Louisiana. Our festivals are some of the best in the world. We have Creole and Cajun cuisine, you just can't find anywhere else, at least not if you want the best of it. And honestly, we just do things a little differently. It's even reflected in the way the state's divided. If you live anywhere else in the continental United States, you call the part of the state where you live a county. But here in Louisiana, instead of counties, we have parishes, a nod to the state's colonial roots when the French and the Spanish settled on native land and set up local governments based on actual church parishes. It's been like that at least since the early 19th century. And today, there are a total of 64 parishes in Louisiana. The biggest is East Baton Rouge, then Jefferson, and then Orleans Parish, where New Orleans is located. Then there's the parish where I grew up, The fourth largest parish in the state, St. Tammany Parish, situated on the scenic north shore of Lake Pontchartrain, across the water from the twinkling lights and round-the-clock jazz and blues of New Orleans. But even though it's one of the state's bigger parishes, it doesn't really feel like it when you're here. It's because for the most part, St. Tammany Parish is a maze of small towns tied together by miles and miles of pine trees. It's a big part of why Louisiana's called a sportsman's paradise. Lots of nature, woods, swamps, and bayous. It's a nice break from the bustle of city life. If you ask the St. Tammany Parish Tourist and Convention Commission, they call it a natural choice for families.
0: The Children's Museum of St. Tammany is holding their annual
2: celebration. For foodies. Fried
1: shrimp baskets, fried fish baskets. Of course, uh, everybody's
2: Nature and and art lovers. The Tammany
3: Trace is a 31-mile-long bike path and to hiking and path. golfers.
2: Having lived here, I can attest to it. St. Tammany Parish can be charming. All the trees, the lonely roads, the peace and quiet. That's the appeal, the charm of St. Tammany communities like Lacombe, a small unincorporated village hugging a bayou that bears the same name where people around here go to raise their families in a place where nothing eventful seems to happen. Lacombe is a quiet community where neighbors relish that they can't always see each other. But nowhere is all peace and quiet all the time. And for some in Lacombe, the promise of a peaceful life in the woods went up in smoke in the summer of 2017.
4: Well, we were just kind of reminiscing about um, just times that we had shared when we were in high school and, um, again, recently when we were um, kind of reunited a couple of years earlier.
2: Lori Rando had been chatting with Nanette Krentel on Facebook the night before the fire ripped through Nanette's house. They were just chatting catching up, a pretty regular thing for two friends who'd known each other for nearly four decades. Now both around 50 years old, they'd met all the way back in high school during their freshman year, so there was no shortage of memories to reminisce about.
4: Just the fun times that we'd had and the memories that we shared, um, both, um, summers that we spent at at my house, as well as all the times that we went horseback riding and, and just all the, the silly fun things that we did. It was just, it was very light. It was very fun. You know, it was just like a normal, a normal day. And you guys were chatting on Facebook messenger. We were chatting, um, actually on the wall, we were chatting on, on the wall. So it was instantly going back and forth with each other. Um, and we would, you know, normally, you know, talk for however long that, you know, the conversation would naturally go. And then when, you know, one of the other of us had to go, you know, it was always, uh, okay, you know, I'll talk to you soon. I'll talk to you tomorrow. I love you. And, you know, we would end the conversation like that.
2: Lori tells me that's how she and Nanette always ended their conversations, by saying I love you. That is the one thing I will
4: never regret, is that we always Always said that we loved each other after
2: um, our conversations. But this time on the night of July 13th, 2017, Lori says that didn't happen. That something, and she doesn't know what, interrupted their back and forth.
4: I wasn't able to say it that night. Why weren't you able to say it that night? Um, Like I said, we were talking back and forth and it was, you know, pretty regular, you know, shooting back and forth with each other. Um, And then all of a sudden... Um, it, was, it was she had stepped away from the computer, you know, for a minute or two, um, but the minute or two lasted a little bit longer, and then a little bit longer, and a little bit longer. So it was as if we were talking and chatting back and forth, and then it just stopped. It just ended. Um, there was no goodbyes. There was no, I will talk to you tomorrow. It was no, we didn't wrap it up like we normally would end a conversation. Um, so I found that very strange. Um, but. You know, sometimes people get called away. It was, it was getting kind of late. It was summer, so, uh, you know, I was up. Um, I didn't have to work in the morning, so, you know, I was just like, oh, well, I guess, you know, something happened. Something came up. She has pets. Maybe one had to go outside. You know, I wasn't sure what had happened. All I know is that it was very unlike her to just abruptly end the conversation like that.
0: So we grew up together in the same household. So Nan and I shared a room our whole life. We never had our own rooms. So until, you know, about 19, 20 years, we, and we worked at the same place, and we had horses at a stable together, so we always were together.
2: As Nanette Krentel's sister, Amy Bernard, remembers. It was about 2.30 p.m. on the day of the fire when she got a call from her brother telling her there was something going on at Nanette's or Nan's house.
0: I was leaving work and tell me that uh, I thought he was going to you know, need something to do with that. But uh, he told me that there had been a fire at Nan's house, in Steve's house, that um, Nan's car was found under
2: the carport, but she was not. This call would have come in shortly after Steve Crennell's fire unit had arrived at the house and spotted Nanette's Mercedes. But where Nanette herself might be, at this point, nobody knows. So, you know, left work,
0: met my husband, hightailed it over there, Mm -hmm. and we took a wrong turn because we were just kind of hurrying. So, turned around
2: and went down Smith, and got to the gate. Amy had driven over from the nearby city of Covington, maybe a 20 or 25-minute drive away from the Crentals property in Lacombe. At the end of Philip Smith Road, that remote, dead-end roadway Steve Crentel had sped down not long before Amy. There's one other house on the left-hand side. Everything else is woods. And then there's
0: more woods, and then you would come to their house, which is at the end of the property, and there's woods all around. They had a nice house, um, a big sign that said Crentel in front of it, that kind of lit up but you would be very secluded back there. You really had no neighbors. Those other neighbors, which I believe are relatives, are quite far away. So once you got to that property, there's no one else around.
2: And so, you know, anything could have happened. The driveway and its locking gate is the only roadway in or out. The only other way to get to the home is through the woods that surround it on the other three sides. It just felt kind of desolate.
0: Kind of isolated.
2: Very isolated.
0: Very isolated.
2: We are headed to the rental property where the fire was. And it's pretty remote. Uh, it's in Lacombe. You can see as we're driving through here There are lots of trees, and this is not a private road, but it leads up to one. Um, I'm curious to see what it looks like now and what the property looks like now. I've driven out to the Krenel property a couple of times since the day of the fire in July of 2017. Here it is. And Amy's right. I don't know if I'd say it feels desolate, but it is certainly isolated. This is beautiful, but it's quiet. hear a rooster in the distance. Behind the fence, there used to be two houses. Steve's cousin has a house that's further up the property and his daughter is who called 911 the day of the fire. Past that house, is where Steve and Annette Crentel used to live, and that's the house that caught on fire. So it's quite a long driveway. It is remote out here, and you can see that there's plenty of security around just by the number of cameras, Uh, the fact that there is that locking gate that has to be activated for people to go in. And so this is a pretty secured site, if I've ever seen one. In 2017, when Amy Bernard rushes out to her sister's home, it's not so quiet. As she pulls up, she sees the property is packed with emergency vehicles from the fire department, the sheriff's office, and maybe even another agency or two.
0: We were able to drive in, but there were so many vehicles um, that, emergency vehicles, lots of different entities were there. So we parked a good ways away and we walked through the property. And as I was walking, I knew there was a gate or a fence or something between the only other house on the property, um, a little clearing on the left. So I looked at that clearing and I saw Nian's husband, I saw Steve kind of looking down, walking around, kind of kicking the dirt a little bit.
2: Steve's had been the first fire unit to arrive. But by now, others are at the scene where it's hot and not just Louisiana in July hot. The house is still kicking off heat as the firefighters work to control it.
0: The fire was just being put out. So it would be about 3.30 by the time I got from Covington there and walked down the property. It's about an hour after the call. And um, the next person I ran into was Brian, Steven's brother, his mother, and another friend of theirs. They were there that soon? that's the first person that I ran into after, actually talked to, was Brian.
2: Brian Krentl, Steve's brother, Nanette's brother-in-law. A lot of people in Nanette's life would tell me she hadn't had a great relationship with Brian up to this point, which is maybe the reason Amy's surprised to see him at the house with the rest of Steve's side of the family. I did kind of think
0: it was a little odd that he was there, and, and he did tell me he was sorry.
2: Um, that he had just seen Nan. According to Amy, Brian tells her the last time he saw Nanette, she had her baby with her, meaning her dog, a long-haired chihuahua named Harley, who's also nowhere to be found the day of the fire.
0: Stephen's mom just kind of shrugged and, you know, looked at me. and That was a quick and brief encounter because I wanted to get to the scene.
2: Smoke and ash hang in the air, as Amy makes her way toward that smoldering house.
0: I walked as far as I could up to the scene. It was very hot. just had been put out. I uh, did see, when I looked at the property, that it was totally devastated. The more I looked at it, all the corners, there was no area that seemed to be <clears throat> maybe it, like a, a stove fire. Maybe it started there and the other part they had gotten out or something, but everything seemed to be almost completely devastated.
2: Amy quickly spots what Steve Crennell had seen earlier that afternoon and what her brother had told her over the phone. Nanette's Mercedes SUV is still in the carport, but still no sign of Nanette herself. As firefighters go in and out of the burned rubble, Amy racks her brain trying to piece together where her sister could possibly be. What if she'd been taken? Abducted. If she had gone out that morning
0: and come back home, it would be very easy for someone to to um, get her when she got out of the car. Um, be waiting for her, be very easy on that property, and no one would have known.
2: Another possibility that runs through Amy's mind is that Nanette could have walked off into the woods earlier in the day and gotten lost, or maybe even hurt.
0: As we were sitting there and watching, I sat down and it was common. I knew Nan is not a nature walker. So if she was out in the woods somewhere, you know, that was highly unlikely. Um, she would have seen the fire and come back. So, you know, common sense told you that she was in there.
2: In there, meaning in the house or what remains of it, which isn't much.
0: And we just kind of watched the firemen try and get in there.
2: Were there walls left?
0: No walls left. No, nothing. And, um, you know, you might have a little remnant of a brick here or there,
2: but no. The fire had burned so hot and spread so quickly that the entire house had burned to the ground within a span of a few hours.
0: So that is where the questions came in, because... Ooh, if I was called at 2:30 there by 3:30 and the house was completely gone. I felt like if there was a stove fire or something like that, that there would have been more remnants of the house there. and it, how hot it was
2: As the hours go by and the hot summer sun slowly dips below the tree line, Amy keeps her eyes on that ashen rubble, hoping against hope that somehow some way her sister had made it out. That maybe she would come out of the woods or call from a payphone somewhere with a ridiculous story. That she wasn't somewhere in the smoldering remnants of her home. That she might still be alive. That's when Amy notices some commotion among the firefighters and quickly realizes what's happening.
0: They all congregated and you can see that and looked down. And um, I told my brother, I said, they found her.
2: A woman's remains, later confirmed to be the body of Nanette Krentel, had been discovered on the tile floor of her and Steve's master bathroom.
0: So then they immediately came over and um, Chief Haley had come over and give it and told Steve, he was the one. Steve was directly behind me. And so, of course, he told him and hugged him, and I got upset for a minute, about 30 seconds, but then something snapped in my head. I said, you know what, her soul is gone, and we can deal with that later. But for her investigation or for her to see what happened, um, need to snap out of it and start paying it really close attention.
2: Her eyes quickly turn Toward Steve Crentel. I looked
0: to see where Steve was, and he was
2: behind me, he had bent down, um, couldn't see his face.
0: He was kind of shaking a little bit, um, like he was, uh, you know, crying. And then he got up in the um, ambulance. Uh, people came and asked if we wanted to go, and he went in first, the ambulance, and she asked me, and I, I declined. And so I never did get in the ambulance. I stayed and looked at the hole, just watched.
2: Amy starts to ask herself a question the question that would haunt her and the rest of Nanette's family for years. How exactly had Nanette died?
0: And at first, um, you know, sat in a chair and I had a fireman friend that I've known a long time. And I started asking him about smoke inhalation because, you know, it's normal. You didn't want him to suffer the least amount of suffering that possibly could have happened. so I was thinking, well... Maybe this, you know, smoke, whatever happened, got her first, and she didn't feel any of this, and the dogs and the animals. And we talked for a while when he talked to me about smoke inhalation.
2: But as Amy sits and looks at the scene in front of her, more and more questions creep into her mind.
0: I really went back to our uh, roots a little bit with a little bit of law that our family grew up in, and some of the fire investigations that my mother and grandmother talked about my mother with the depots that she did, and um, I thought, you know, I think this fire was set. I told my, I said, this is an accelerant of some sort because there was too, it was too far gone and too short of a time. And also I said, I think she was incapacitated, uh, whether it be from, you know, even though she was young, maybe a medical issue. Um, but I felt like she was deceased before the fire.
2: Remember, it wasn't the middle of the night when the fire started. It was around 2 p.m., the middle of the afternoon on a sunny day. So why hadn't Nanette gotten out? Where they found her body, um,
0: what I could remember, it seemed close to where she could have gotten out through a window or some capacity if there was a fire that had started somewhere else that was a little slower moving that she could have gotten out of the house
2: one of the first explanations that comes to mind is the animals nanette loved her pets her two cats baby kitty and Smokey, and harley her chihuahua whom family members say went everywhere with her we even
0: talked about her going in and getting an animal and going and get because she was such an animal lover Um uh, we grew up with animals, so, <clears throat> you know, she and I both love our animals. And I thought, well, it would be like her to want to save them all. But cats are probably a lot harder. If there's a fire, they would scatter. Mm-hmm. I did not feel like she would go take her dog and throw them out the door, get him out, go in and get another one and get another one, and, and then succumb to that. I didn't feel like—I think she would have— You know, tried to get whoever she could, but if the fire got in too intense, that she would have stayed out. Mm -hmm. Um, But she wouldn't try and gather them all up at once to get out. So I did feel that way. So the more I sat there, I was feeling something wasn't right.
2: Lori Rando, Nanette's friend who'd been chatting with her on Facebook the night before the fire, had a lot of the same questions.
4: The night, obviously, that I had heard um, about the fire, um, I I was, I couldn't understand it. I I could not understand how at 2.30 in the afternoon, a perfectly healthy woman
2: could not get out of a fire. It was just a couple of weeks before Nanette's birthday when she was found dead. She was 49 years old, about to turn 50. And when Lori Rando heard the news, she was actually online shopping for gifts for her friend.
4: So I had just ordered from Amazon, and I had put all of her information in to have it sent directly to her. And um, that was probably, you know, around 7 o'clock in the evening. And it was around 10 o'clock, 10.30 that night. I got a private message from a girl that we both went to high school with. And she said that she was really sorry to have to tell me this, but there was a fire um, at Nanette's house and she didn't make it. And I didn't understand because um, this girl and I, although we knew each other, it wasn't that we had um, communication rarely at all. So I was like, no, I said, I think you're mistaken. I think you have me mixed up with someone else. And she said, no, Lori, I'm sorry. It is Nanette. It's Nanette's house. The
2: friend tells Lori to pull up a local news article about the fire. So she does.
4: And it didn't have her name at the time, but it did have the address that I had just put in to Amazon three hours earlier. And so I, I knew it was her house and um, I just pretty much lost it from there. And I actually did. I called her phone. I called her. Um, I obviously got a a voice message, and um, I said I needed her to call me because um, I think somebody was playing a really cruel joke, and I needed her to call me um, as soon as she got this message. And um, obviously, I never got that phone call.
2: Like Nanette's sister, Amy, Lori also considers the possibility that Nanette went back in for her pets. But she reaches the same conclusion. That explanation— just doesn't add up.
4: Even as much as she loved those animals, and Harley probably would have already been in her arms or on her lap, she loved her cats. But I still won't believe that she would have gone back in the house to save them. She was a fire chief's wife. She knew how dangerous it would be to go back in the house um, with the smoke and, and what have you. So, When they tried to tell me that uh, she went back in the house to save the animals, I I know how she felt about her animals, but I I I didn't believe that.
2: fire chief's wife found dead in a fire it really does sound like the premise of a movie or a dusty old mystery book not something that happens in real life and yet it did back at the scene of the fire nanette's sister amy is still sitting in a lawn chair trying to make sense of what she's seeing play out in front of her
0: people were walking everywhere and i thought to myself well you know I- hope they don't touch anything and um, then that machinery did leave and people started to leave Mm -hmm. Um, I did have a fire marshal or someone who was in white that worked for the fire department come and tell me that there has never been these many fire chiefs at a fire normally so you know I guess that made me feel good Mm -hmm. you know that they were going to really look at it
2: While this is going on, as smoke continues to drift upward from the charred wreckage, as the sky turns dark, Nanette's body has not been removed from the rubble. And Amy decides she's not going to leave until Nanette does.
0: I stayed as close as I could. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they said, well, they were going to make a a screen. Uh, Or they were going to put a screen up. And uh, just to kind of shield us a little bit. And I thought that meant uh, like a piece of tarp or something they were going to hold. But they didn't. They each stood next to each other, which was for a long time. Very, very sweet and nice, I guess. This is what they do. And um, kind of shielded us. And they had equipment and they had lights and they had sounded like saws or something, something to probably get her up and uh, so that she was intact. They did a really good job trying to be careful. I think. And um, I could see a little bit through with the light, you know, that they were down there and they were working. Maybe they were taking pictures too. I'm not sure. So I could not see them put her in the van, but I saw when they picked her up
2: and she was in the body bag. Amy follows the body bag with her eyes, watching as the body is removed as her sister leaves her home for the last time. They put her in the van
3: and
0: then I waited for them to drive away. So I knew that she was going. And so when I saw that, then we turned around and we left.
1: The first part, whenever you, you get, a, get sent to a, a death, it's the, the equivocal death analysis or the equivocal evaluation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, in a, in a nutshell, what are you dealing with? Homicide, accident, suicide, whatever.
2: This is Doug Johnson, a career homicide investigation supervisor who would take interest in this case later on when he would serve as a consultant for some of the members of Nanette's family.
1: And anytime you're dealing with a fire, you're on a heightened sense of alert because it could be anything. And fire is a great way to cover up a crime. Mm -hmm. And it's also... A great source of accidents, especially around here.
2: Doug has spent his career in the Midwest, where he says a lot of house fires happen in the winter and are sparked by fireplaces or kerosene heaters, something we can safely rule out for a house fire that happened in July in Louisiana. But when Nanette's body is found, we still don't know if the fire was an accident, a stove fire or something like that, or if it was intentional, if for whatever reason... Whether they knew Nanette was inside or not, someone had set her house on fire. Two other questions that are still unanswered? When and how Nanette had actually died? I asked Doug Johnson to walk me through how investigators would typically go about beginning to answer those questions after arriving at the scene of a fatal fire.
1: Well, when you arrive, you assess the body and try to determine the cause of death. Mm -hmm. You also try to determine how long the body may have been deceased. And if you've got somebody available, like a pathologist wanting to come out to the scene, we notify them. And sometimes they can come out, sometimes they can't. And they will make an assessment, You kind of give you some insight as to what you might be dealing with, and then the body would be secured because it's at this stage evidence and sent to somebody, a medical examiner, for examination. And then we would canvas the area for anything out of the ordinary, you know, people coming and going, people that were seen. Also, depending on the neighborhood, look for security cameras. A lot of people have security cameras anymore. Mm-hmm. For, to cover their property. But they may also show something in the background that you're interested in. And you talk to the regulars, like the mailman and anybody else that might have a regular you know, route past that residence or involving that residence. And you always try to define the individual who's got the most information. Generally speaking, that would be a family member.
2: And if it's a woman? If, it's, if, if the body is the body of a woman, does that change things?
1: Well, yeah, you'd probably contact her husband because the husband should be intimately involved with every aspect of her life that day, you know, knows when she gets up, knows what she eats, knows where she's gonna eat, you know, knows all the habits.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the downside to that is a family member may be a suspect.
2: In this case, the family member closest to Nanette, or at least the only family member who lived with her, would be her husband, Steve Krentel. Retracing his steps on the day of the fire, he'd rushed out to the home around 2 p.m. when that tattletale camera in his department vehicle shows him arriving at the scene. Over four hours later, but still before Nanette's body was discovered, Steve leaves a voicemail message for his father-in-law Dan Watson, who lives in Iowa.
3: Hey, this is Steve. Can you, can you call as soon as you please? A uh, cell phone. Thank you.
2: By the time Dan receives the message and calls back, the news has gone from bad—there was a fire—to the unthinkable: his daughter is dead.
3: Well, I was sitting in Marcia's fiftieth class reunion, and I had the little clip uh, flip phone and. It was ringing, but I couldn't. I couldn't get to it. So I went outside, and I played back Steve's message to call him. Hey, this is Steve. Can you get a call as soon as you get this, please? And yes. then he told me that Nanette had died that afternoon in a house fire.
2: As Dan begins to process what he's hearing, he says the conversation gets a little more difficult to follow.
3: And then. He was sobbing at the time, and then he stopped sobbing and said, oh, no, I can't. (laughs) I don't want this to get in front of the news media. This is just going to be bad. And he wasn't sobbing when he said that, and it was a real break in the conversation. He had been talking about, man, I kind of lost track right after he said. She died in a house fire, but when he got to the social media, it was such a break in the the dialogue that it's like, what? What? Who cares? Anyway, um, so I wished him well and so forth. And um, we hung up.
2: Have you handled a fatal fire before?
1: Oh, yeah. You have identity issues. You know, you know who lives there. And, yeah, this is probably that person. But you got to go back and positively identify that individual. And dental records, DNA, hospital records, whatever, uh, you, can, you can use to identify that individual, which is generally a step you don't have in somebody that's visually identifiable. And then... The other big issue is, were they alive at the time of the fire? Or was the fire set to cover up another crime?
2: In an effort to help answer that question, while the St. Tammany Parish Sheriff's Office is beginning its death investigation, the State Fire Marshal's Office is beginning a separate investigation into the cause of the fire. And when State Fire Marshal Butch Browning arrives at the scene, it is quickly apparent that it's going to take some time.
3: We're in the preliminary stages where we're just trying to determine the area of origin. And then from there, there is a number of scientific things that we have to do to determine the cause of the fire. That's really the first thing we have to do. And, and, and by, the, by the looks of this scene, it's going to take several days to do that.
2: As for the sheriff's office, about 9 p.m. after Nanette's remains had been removed, they secure the scene. Not knowing what evidence might be hiding in the ashes. Wake up.
3: There's a face back at me.
2: On the next episode of Beyond Bartstown, look home. Dad
4: called and said, Kim, the dead. And I what? And just immediately started screaming They killed her Oh my gosh, if, if you knew her, you loved
0: her She was so much fun Her laugh, like you hear it repeated like, She had a very
1: infectious
0: And um, fun laugh
1: In the middle of the day, if you sleep normal hours And you're awake, you don't die in a house fire I said,
3: where are you? And he said, I'm at the fire scene
4: How is this open to the public? How am, are we able to just drive in here?
3: Nan was scared to death of him
2: Will you scratch shoulder. Right? around? Beyond Bardstown, Lacombe is a Vault Studios and WWL-TV production. You can learn more about our podcasts, including The Daily Crime and True Crime Chronicles at vaultstudios.com. Special thanks to WWL-TV News Director Keith Esperos and Visual Journalist Derek Waldrop. Vault Studios executive producers are Brian Weiss and Will Johnson. Reed Redman is our writer and producer. Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland, mixes and edits the show. For Vault Studios, I'm Katie Moore.